Hello again, everyone. If you have your Bibles, please open to Haggai chapter 1. We're in the the third week now in our series in the book of Haggai. Um, Haggai is the third to last book of the Old Testament. So if you're having trouble still, go to Matthew uh, and then work your way backwards. Malachi, uh, Zechariah, and then you'll find Haggai, two short chapters. We're going to read together now Haggai 1 from verse 12 to 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Let's pray. Dear God, we ask um, that in this special time that we have together, that you would speak to us again through your word. Make us expectant and speak to us through your spirit, we pray. Amen. One of my favorite characters in the Bible is the Apostle Peter. I can identify with Peter on so many levels, speaking when perhaps I should remain quiet, confused at times even though I've walked with the Lord for a long time, adamant that if all else would fail, I will remain faithful, only to find faithfulness fail me when the heat is turned up. But knowing too, like Peter knew with all his heart, silver or gold have I none, nothing to offer, not what I I want to be or what I ought to be, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. All I know, Jesus loves me and has restored me and can love and restore you as well. One of the most interesting things for me about the Apostle Peter is that while before Pentecost, the disciples are usually portrayed as bumbling, mistake after mistake, after Pentecost, Uh, That's not usually the case. Very rarely do you see the disciples portrayed in a negative light after Pentecost. And yet Peter still is rebuked. There's a time where he's rebuked. Now he had learned the lesson uh, of welcoming the Gentiles into the church. He'd learned the lesson that the kingdom of heaven is for Jew and Gentile alike. But through pressure from the Jews, he had stopped eating with them as he once did. And so Paul speaks of this in Galatians chapter 2, saying, I rebuked Peter to his face. What I love about Peter here is how he responds. This matter, the Gentiles coming into the church, comes before the church council in Acts chapter 15. And there's a great debate over what they are to do and, and how they are to welcome these people in. Should they be subject to the, the law, the law of Moses? And Peter, ultimately, after great debate, speaks up, and he speaks up for the the Gentiles in a way that says, all the people fell silent. 
Peter's passion persuades. He doesn't take the rebuke of Paul as a reason to run and hide, but he humbles himself. He receives that rebuke, and then he gets up and he leads the church. Whatever else he was, he was a man who learned how to repent. He learned how to hear the word of the Lord. And out of fear for the Lord to consider his ways. He was an example of Christ's words in John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Peter loved his master's voice. And so he is a model for the type of relationship that weak people like me ought to have to the word of God. And to the courage to follow Jesus Christ. It is a rare and beautiful thing in this world when there's a favorable response to the rebuke of God's word. And something rare and beautiful happens in the book of Haggai. So to catch you up, if you'll remember, after decades spent in Babylon in exile, God raised up Cyrus, the Medo-Persian king. And Cyrus made a decree that the people are to return to the land of Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. And so 50,000 Jews return, enthusiastic for that work. And then they meet struggle and opposition in the land. And their enthusiasm begins to fade and turn into discouragement. Cyrus dies and Artaxerxes takes over. And those who are opposing the work in the land, they write to him and he orders that the work must stop. And so they stop rebuilding the temple and for 16 years, nothing happens, and complacency sets in in the camp. And they busy themselves with things that were important, yes. Their, their houses and things like, like work and, and how to make ends meet. Those were important things, but they busied themselves with the important things and neglected the most important thing, the house of the Lord. And they said, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Other concerns began to grow up and choke out what should have been their main concern, the glory of God. We live in a similar time. We live in a time where other concerns have crept up recently, have they not? And those concerns have the danger, they come with the danger of of possibly causing us to forget what should come first, the glory of God. Have those concerns dry, uh, been, been dri driven out of our hearts? Concerns for the Lord's house. This time comes with the danger that we would forget that we are His chosen people, that we exist for Him out of the world, for His glory and for His pleasure. So last week, we looked at the rebuke in chapter 1, in verses 4 and 5. Haggai says to them, Is it a time for you to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. And how do they respond? We see it here in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. Now maybe this doesn't seem surprising to you, that all the people listen to what Haggai has said. 
Isn't that what is supposed to happen when God speaks? But look at the world around you. Look throughout the Old Testament and what do you see when prophets speak? This isn't a common response. If Jeremiah or Isaiah were to read the book of Haggai, I think they would be dumbstruck by what happens here. It's like when I say to my three-year-old, please go and clean your room, were he to jump up and say, with pleasure, and I don't have to raise a finger to help or make one single threat. That's what's happening on this day. They respond to the word of the Lord as a people all together. What happens in Haggai's day is every preacher's dream, every prophet's dream, except I suppose Jonah's dream. Ironically, Jonah is one of those exceptions to the rule where he preaches and, and people obey. But Jonah tried to avoid his mission work, his work to Nineveh. And when he goes to Nineveh, he preaches the, the shortest, angriest sermon you find in the Bible. Basically, 40 days and you're all toast. And then he escapes from the city to a higher vantage point to see fire rain down on the city. But the people repent. There's mass repentance and revival. And God relents. And Jonah ends up begrudging his own assertion that salvation belongs to the Lord. Haggai's short ministry sees an unusual success for a prophet in this corporate repentance, God bringing revival to his people. And so the language begins to change in this passage. In verse 2, when he first speaks to them, he says, these people, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Not my people or God's people, these people. Here in our verses, they are called the remnant now. Haggai is picking up the language of the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah's ministry was go and preach and they will not listen to you. But in the book of Isaiah, there is another group, this remnant a God-fearing minority in the land of Judah. And, and Isaiah prophesies the exile, but that a remnant will return. In fact, that's the meaning of one of his son's names. Now finally, after all this time in Babylon, we see the people of God finally identified as this remnant, the fulfillment of this prophecy. But notice that it comes after their repentance. In fact, the word for return in the Hebrew is often interchangeable with the word for repent. These people have returned to Jerusalem. But in order to fulfill the prophetic hope of a remnant that would return, it requires more than just their physical presence in Jerusalem. Alec Martia comments, he says, once they respond to the Lord's word, they show themselves to be truly the returned community. Not just those who have come back to the land, but in the deeper sense of returning, those who have come back to the Lord in repentance. What's happened in the land of Jerusalem now is, is similar to what Christ is talking about. In the parable of the sower, there are four types of soil, soil. You remember that parable? The third type of soil is the soil that is thorny where when the, the seed, which is the word of God, is sown and grows up, it grows up together with um, weeds and thorns. And those weeds choke out the word. 
Uh, Jesus says, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word of God. But the fourth type of soil is the good soil, where the word is planted and bears fruit. The people of God on this day have gone from being soil three listeners to soil four listeners. They've gone from allowing safety and comfort to cloud out what should have mattered most. But no more. They are confronted in their sin and in their disobedience. And they respond with open ears. Church, this is the mark of what it means to be the true people of God. That you embrace the conviction that comes from the word of God as it confronts you in your sin, as it highlights your disobedience. When Bible preaching and Bible teaching and personal Bible study leads to the confrontation of sin, we embrace that as a good thing. That is a good thing. It is a sign that the Spirit is at work among us. An inability and an unwillingness to be rebuked by the Word of God should be a worrying sign in your life. It might even be the worrying sign that you are, are dead, perhaps, in your trespasses and sins. But as a people of God, we don't just stop at feeling conviction and confrontation. It's a, often a terribly silly thing in the life of the church when we meet week in and week out to feel convicted about sin, but never change anything, never transformed. Oh, what a, a convicting message that was, Pastor. What a good message but then go and do nothing about it. Christianity surely cannot be summed up in meeting once a week to receive a good beating so that we can feel good perhaps in our sin. James 1.22 says, Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We're called to more than the miserable existence of half-hearted devotion to the Lord. Sinclair Ferguson said, some Christians have just enough obedience to make themselves miserable. Just enough obedience in their lives to make themselves miserable. When Haggai told them to consider their ways, do you remember what he said? He pointed to the, the frustration they had, the lack of satisfaction in their pursuits. And this principle rings true. There is no satisfaction in partial obedience to the Lord Jesus. Only wholehearted devotion releases us from the things that would tie us down and cause us not to, be, to experience liberty and joy of really giving ourselves over to Him. Half-hearted service is miserable service. It is not a source of joy. It is a burden and a source of grief. But their hearts are transformed and they obey the message this day. And notice, did you see in verse 12 what goes together with their obedience? Something that cannot be separated from true obedience. Look at verse 12 again. Zerubbabel and Joshua, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. So often, when we look at the Bible, the cries of the prophets 
go on deaf ears. So often when the preacher stands up to open the word, when the prophet says, thus saith the Lord, it is met with careless indifference and the casual shrug of the, the shoulders. But this day was different for the people of God. Joyce Baldwin in her commentary says, there is no quibbling as to Haggai's authority. The people feared before the Lord. When God has spoken, apathy is evidence of practical atheism. Is that maybe true in your life? She says they feared in the sense that they had been startled wide awake by the very voice of God. Startled awake by God's voice. Do you have a, an alarm system in your house? And has that alarm system ever gone off in the middle of the night? I, I do, and many, many times before. I don't know if it's a gecko. You guys have a lot of geckos here in KZN. But for some reason, on a regular basis, my alarm goes off in the middle of the night, and I hate it. I hate it. As the man of the house, I'm the one tasked and responsible to, to act when that happens. And so I'm out there in my boxes thinking to myself, no one wants to die half naked. Sometimes, if I'm lucky, I've got a, a golf club in my hand, a sturdy five iron. But at 2 a.m. in the morning, there's no more awake than alarm going off awake. There's no more awake than fear for your life awake. They have been roused from sleep by the seriousness of the message and they've been stirred to an appropriate fear. And the Hebrew uses a pretty strong idiom in this passage. It means literally to fear from the face of, to fear from before. This is different to what many people experience in the world, a sort of general faceless fear of God. They don't really want anything to do with God, but maybe they have a fear of dying and a fear of possible hell. I was listening this week to uh, the testimony of Jackie Hill Perry, who was saved out of a life of lesbianism. And she spoke of this fear. She said, I always had this general sort of fear, believing that God is real, but not wanting anything to do with him. She always equated belonging to God as, as a boring life, a life of restriction. She says, after I was saved, something changed in my temptations. There was an awareness, a different awareness that Jesus was there. I knew before that he was there, but suddenly I cared. There's a good kind of fear, the fear of the Lord. It's not the fear of the unknown. It's not a faceless fear, but it's a clarity that comes from being shaken awake by an undeniable reality before your eyes. To be sure, part of the fear of the Lord is knowing He is holier than I could ever know. He is greater than I could ever comprehend, but even that is a knowledge. It's a part of knowledge that, that informs an appropriate fear. The fear of the Lord is the good kind of fear that comes from finding yourself face to face with God and being changed forever by that meeting. I believe something of this fear is what shaped the Apostle Peter and made him who he was and gave him a heart of repentance. I was reminded of this recently. 
Um, we've got these uh, children's books, and I, I think I reference these quite regularly. They're, they are great resources, and um, they're available here at the, the media center. But this one is about Peter. It's called A Friend Who Forgives. It's about Christ's forgiveness. And in this book, it tells the story of Peter's denial and how after he denies Jesus the third time, the rooster crows as Jesus said it would. And if you read in the Bible, it says that he actually looked across in that moment, across a courtyard, I think it's in the Gospel of Luke, and looked into Jesus' face. This uh, book, children's book, captures the moment so well. He looked into the face of the one that he had just disowned, denied. And Peter is broken by that sight. Someone comment, has commented on it saying, in that moment, Peter must have thought, if only I'd have lived conscious of this, that the face of the Lord Jesus is always turned towards me. That's the fear of the Lord. Living with the consciousness, the face of the one I love, the one who matters more than anyone or anything, my Lord, his face is always turned towards me. The fear of the Lord is connected to intimacy with the Lord, not disconnected from it, not opposed to it. It's no coincidence, I believe, that when they wake up and it says they fear the Lord, that the language of the passage changes. They are no longer these people. They are the remnant. And twice in verse 12 and once in verse 14, he's not just described as the Lord or the Lord of hosts, but as the Lord, their God. When they are woken to the fear of the Lord, they remember he is our God. We are his and he is ours. What we have heard is not just the voice of a prophet. We've heard the voice of the Lord, our God. This passage is shot through with that recognition. In verse 12, they obeyed, it says, the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. Verse 13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. When things are bleak for the people of God in Haggai's day, when opposition is fierce and when they face discouragement, God speaks again and he pursues his people. And he pursues them unto repentance. And repentance is this. It's recognizing my God is speaking to me today. Is that the awareness that you live with? Is that your expectation and your hope when you come to the word of God? His word is speaking to me. Is it your hope today for the church? Even now, his word is pursuing his church. And what is his word for them today? In our passage, we come to the third of six oracles in the book of Haggai. In week one, we looked at the first oracle. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And in week two, we looked at the second is it a time for you to live in paneled houses while well, this house lies in ruins? And they wake up to the fear of the Lord because of these messages. And so the third oracle we see here in verse 13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke 
to the people the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you. It is when their eyes are open to the problem of their casual indifference and they fear again that they're experiencing that they experience the full comforting force of God's presence among them. I am with you. When you go through the book of Haggai, I think we are to find this as something amazing. In a book about the importance of the rebuilding of the physical temple, the place of God's glorious presence among his people, God doesn't withhold the message, I'm with you until after the temple is rebuilt. Alec Marchi again comments, well, in Haggai's Old Testament terms, the presence of the Lord was conditioned upon setting apart a house for the Lord to dwell in. The Lord is here swift to teach that it is not the house per se that concerns him, but the house as symbolic of hearts that long for him to be central to life and to dwell in the midst of wills set to obey him. Where these realities are present, he rushes to assure of his real and living presence. The house still lies in ruins, but he pursues their hearts, and when he has their hearts, he says to them, I'm with you even as you rebuild. They'd been rebuked in their sin. Their disobedience has been highlighted, but they are not a forsaken people. What we see in this beautiful passage is God winning his people again with grace and his goodness. Why is it that we come to the word of the Lord and we open up our hearts, ready to receive whatever is there, ready to be convicted, ready even for the rebuking light of his word? It's because what matters most to us is this truth, I want to be close to him. I need to be close to him. Verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of, God, the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. And so we see these four short words in English, actually two in the Hebrew, I am with you, have a profound effect among the people of God. Are those words too simple a message to stir up courage? Are they too simple a message to stir up a working for his house, a giving of ourselves in devotion to it? Perhaps we've brandished them too lightly, Perhaps we've prayed too often thoughtlessly, God be with us. These are our precious words. The reality is that there is no greater comfort in the Christian life than this truth, God saying to us, I am with you. Richard Cecil, the British minister, speaks of how at the deathbed of his mother, he was asking her if she was ready, asking her if she was afraid to die. She responded with a, a resounding no, quoting from Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, fear not, 
for I will be with you. What mountain is there in our lives or what challenge is there that we would possibly be called to bear that is not made bearable by this truth, by these simple words, I am with you. When you fear God and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt in your heart that he is with you, is there anything that you cannot bear as a Christian? And there is something else I believe that's amazing in this passage, in the order of this verse. Notice, and the Hebrew is kind of clear, it implies um, sequence here. They obey and they fear the Lord. Then he says to them, I'm with you. And then he stirs them up to the courage and the resolve to do this difficult and dangerous work. They fear and in that fear, God draws near to them. And as he draws near to them, he stirs them up. I believe there's something important here for us as well, especially in our reformed camp. I was listening to a, a Scottish preacher uh, preaching on this text. His name is Andrew Quigley. And he was speaking about how he was tired of, of going to reformed conferences in the UK. He says, whenever I go to these conferences, they, they use certain language. And he says, we've got to stop saying these things. The, the time, now is the time, he says, for small things. It's in a context of really difficult ministry. He says, we've got to stop calling for faithfulness at the expense of calling for fruitfulness. He says we've got to stop accepting a lack of commitment for the majority of people in our congregations saying if only God would send revival. Quigley says revival does not precede obedience. Obedience precedes revival. And that is not to deny God's hand in stirring even that initial obedience. The same word stir here is the word used of Cyrus. God stirred up Cyrus to give the decree. It's the same word used of the people who originally returned. He stirred them up and they returned to the land. For sure God is at work in stirring them up in their initial obedience. But we need to be careful, I think, in the message of this, this text, in our reformed camps, not to use the sovereignty of God as an excuse not to expect from one another obedience and zeal. Hagar shows what happens when obedience begins to pervade the life of the church. And Christian, I believe this is a principle true of our lives. What is God calling you to today? What is the sin that you are not dealing with? See what happens when you begin to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. See what happens when you intentionally begin to identify your sin and slay it. See what happens when you stop only contemplating what might be right and actually take the first step. Christian, get up and do something. Open your Bible and read it. Go and actually ask your coworker that awkward question about God. Do something this passage is calling us to do. The people of God on this day have gotten the message. God's saying to them, you are my people. And I've not called you to labor to a limit. I've not called you to partial devotion. I've not called you to plod or to drift along. I've not called you to pursuits that are going to leave you unsatisfied. 
I've called you to give me your heart, to give me your life. Church, I feel the burden of this in this season. I feel strongly the burden of this as your pastor to call you to be vigilant, to be vigilant about your commitment to the Lord. What I want for you and for me is not half-hearted devotion, a full-hearted devotion that comes with joy. I don't want for us the, the misery of split allegiances. And my concern at this time is that I believe this will be a time of sifting in the church. I was speaking to some members in the church this week about the book of Haggai and about uh, worshiping from home and the struggle that we're facing right now. And, and in seriousness, they said to me, I, one person said to me, I'm worried. I'm worried sitting at home week in and week out that God is not gonna be happy with my, my praises because it's not the same. It's not the same as being together with the people of God. It's a shell. It's a shadow. And so my, my encouragement to them and my encouragement to you was this. If we apply the principle of Haggai to putting the Lord's house first to today, it means we come to the kingdom of heaven and we say, that comes first in my life. So I said to them, I think you should be encouraged. Your dissatisfaction with worshiping in your home, I believe, is actually a good thing. Let this be a time where your heart grows in its zeal to meet with the people of God because there are people right now who are not phased by this. They are comfortable with this. Let this be a time where God's kingdom becomes a priority in your life. Feel a growing urgency to a wholehearted devotion that says, I will put the glory of God first. Let sin grow uglier to you. Peter was a man who had looked into the face of the Lord and who had been forever changed by that. He was a man who had received and experienced a grace that was undeserved. And he knew that his life was not his own, that he had been bought with a price. Peter's weakness tells the story of Christ's greatness, his mercy, his grace. So I want to close with Peter's words to the church. These are words that we need to hear today. In 1 Peter 2, in verse 4, as you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Did you know that that's your calling? you are a member of the Lord's church, you are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You do not belong to yourself that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Hillcrest Baptist, let us live this out. Let's pray.
Dear Father, you are a holy God, and we are not holy. You are righteous and true and good in all your, th- in all your ways and all your thoughts and everything that you do, and yet at times we still accuse you of wrongdoing. We look at our lives and we look at the, the state of the world around us and we look without hope. Lord, help us to acknowledge today the truth that we do not belong to ourselves, but that we have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Help us to take seriously our call that no matter where we find ourselves, we are to live for your pleasure and for your glory. Help us to be comforted, encouraged, and led to the fear of the Lord by the fact that you have said to us that you are with us, that you are always with us. Give us a consciousness this week, we pray, of your presence. When we are in the the dark places, the hidden places, behind closed doors, help us to know your presence. When we are at work, amongst co-workers, amongst friends, help us to know your presence and what matters most in those moments. Help us to be holy as you are holy. Lead us in obedience, we pray. Amen.